Bible. Last week, we began a little two-week series on prayer. Uh, last week in Ephesians 1, we talked all about uh, the importance of seeking to know God through prayer. God wants us to know Him. And if you say, oh, I'm a believer in Christ, I know Him. Well, He wants you to know Him even better. He wants you to grow in your relationship with Him. And so that's what last week was all about as we talked about that idea of prayer and grasping God's heart. God wants us, the heart of God wants us to know Him and to grow in our relationship with Him. And this week, uh, we're going to talk about our hearts a little bit over in Ephesians chapter 3 and how our hearts are on the line in prayer. There is a link between prayer and the heart. You know, your heart is critical to everything about you. And when I say heart, I'm talking about the inner you, right? Who you really are on the inside. The way I explain it to our kids and other kids is this. It's that part of you that thinks things, right? That has desires and motives that, that, that even sometimes you struggle to discern. But you have those thoughts that are there that only you know about and God. Uh, that's your heart, right? That's your, that's your inner person. And that is a, a really big deal because your heart is driving your life. You say, I don't like where my life is going. I don't like the decisions I'm making. I don't like the, the habits I've formed. I don't like some of the things that I keep doing. Well, guess who's driving, right? Your heart, my heart, our hearts are driving our life. And if we don't like our behavior or our habits or our words or our attitude, then we have to deal with the heart. And if you want to see real change in your life, it starts with the heart. In fact, listen to this. Over in Matthew 22, 37, when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment of all of God's commandments, and there's a bunch of commandments, okay, in the Old Testament is what he was being asked about. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Loving God starts with what? The heart. What Jesus calls the most important commandments be, be, uh, the, of all the commandments God has given us, it begins in your heart because God is after our heart. Over in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's in light of our sin nature. In light of sin, we have heart problems. Spiritually, sin makes our hearts sick. And the reason we run to sin instead of to God, and instead of, the reason we run away from God many times instead of running to God is because we have sick hearts. And then Ezekiel 36, 26, just giving you a little systematic theology of the heart this morning. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart. This is the promise of God in the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's the promise of the new covenant in Christ, that when you put your faith in Christ, you can have, you can have a new heart. You can have a, a new spirit. See, what is wrong with us is on the inside. And God says, I'm on, this is what I'm going to do in Christ Jesus. I'm going to change you on the inside so that it begins to affect the outside. And every believer in Christ has a new heart that loves God and loves others. And, but it's not a perfect heart. It's a new heart. It's an alive heart, spiritually speaking. And it's being transformed day by day. But it's not a perfect heart. And in fact, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, you and I have a responsibility to steward our hearts. We have a responsibility to, to guard our hearts in the right sense of the word and to, and to realize that our entire course of life is affected by the things we do with our heart. And so we need to steward our hearts well. So hopefully you understand this morning as we move towards our text that the heart is a really big deal. Old Testament, New Testament, and like. And we say, well, 
that's fine, but what's that got to do with prayer? Well, the main thing we learn in the prayer that we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians is that we need to pray about human hearts, our hearts and others, and that our hearts needed to be, needed to be added to our prayer list. <laughs> and, but also, at the same time, I believe we see in this prayer some things about Paul's heart that shows us what our hearts need to be in prayer. And so really, this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, really kind of lays bare this idea of inside-out prayer, this idea that, that prayer is really, it's, it's about the heart and, and about the condition of our heart, but also that we need to concern ourselves with our hearts and with the hearts of others when we pray. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Ephesians 3, verse 14, I'm going to read all the way through verse 21. The Apostle Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, this prayer serves, as one person put it, like a hinge in the book of Ephesians, okay? So Paul lays out incredible doctrinal truth in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. It's one of the richest books of doctrine in all of the Bible. Ephesians is right there with uh, Romans. It's just doctrinally rich about ex exploring who we are in Christ and what is true about us in Christ and the riches of God we have in Christ. And he lays that out and what God is doing in the church and uniting both Jew and Gentile through faith in Christ and building one new body called the church. And all this is laid out in those first three chapters. And then you've got this prayer that Paul says he's been praying for them in verses 14 through 21. And then he begins to move in chapters 4, 5, and 6 towards living out practically in our lives who we are in Christ. He tells us who we are in Christ in the first three chapters and what's true about us. He tells us how to live like that's true in those other chapters. In the middle, there's this prayer he tells them he prays for their hearts. Because your heart is the difference in just simply knowing things that are true and living in light of the truth. That, that can only happen through a transformed and a transforming heart. So this prayer is like the hinge, in our, and our heart is like the hinge on which our life swings. So in the immediate context here in chapter 3, Paul has just explained to them how in Christ, God makes one church, one body, that contains both Jew and Gentile. If you were in a small group this morning, you probably explored that in your small group as well. Two groups of people that had animosity towards one another. When they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they are made into one people. And that is theologically true. There's a difference, though, in something being true and us living like it's true. And if these people were to love one another and walk in unity, Jew and Gentile, together as one body in Christ, that would require God to work in and through their hearts. But this isn't, isn't just true about loving one another and about unity in the church, but about anything in the Christian life. See, we can know what God says about, let's just pull some topics out, about money. But there's a difference in knowing what God says about money 
and living like we know what God says about money. It's true and, and living like it. It's true. We can know what God says about sex and sexuality, but there's a difference in knowing what the Bible says about that and living like we believe it's true. We can know what God says about trials and circumstances and, and pain and difficulty and suffering, but does it impact how we go through those things, right? That's, that's where things really begin to make a difference. And all these are heart issues. And if we're going to live out truth, it requires tending to our hearts. And as we walk through this prayer, we're going to look at three key words and how they should shape, should shape our approach in prayer. Okay, the, those words are posture, possibility, and priority. And they all start with P because I've, I've been Baptist for just too long. Okay, <laughs> and it's my hope today that we'll see the relationship between our prayer lives and our hearts and our lives that our prayers will become more centered, okay, around changing the thing that can change us and others forever. Okay, so number one, the first category we're going to look at is the category of posture, okay? And the idea is this. We need to approach God with a humble heart. That's what we mean by posture. We need to approach God with a humble heart. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. It's, it's from Him that every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glories, He may grant you, right? All of these things are, are rooted in a picture of humility. Paul approaches God, he says, on his knees, and he approaches Him as Father, right? And see, true prayer is rooted in a humble approach to God. It's true prayer is rooted in humility. The point is not that we've got to always pray on our knees. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying in this particular stance he did. I saw where one, one particular person pointed out that how, um, I think it was Tony Merida or somebody, pointed out how that in their culture that was actually unusual for Jewish people to pray on their knees, that it was a sign they typically prayed standing, much like you see in their culture today, many times at the Welling Wall and things like that, but that it was kind of unique and it showed deep humility if they got on their knees. And so what Paul was trying to say is, man, I humbly approach God on your behalf. True prayer is rooted in humility. And while we may not always bow on our knees, and we may not even be physically able at some stage in life to bow on our knees, we must bow in our hearts. Prayer is supposed to be an act of humility. I heard a pastor say one time, it was Steve Gaines of Bellevue Baptist. It's always, this quote of his always stuck with me. He said, the most prideful act is prayerlessness because prayerlessness says, I don't need God. There's a lot of truth to that. If we're believers, if you're a believer in Christ, you know you need God, Right? You know that. But when we fail to pray, when we fail to go to God in prayer and to seek Him, we live practically and functionally like we don't need Him. In fact, I'd go a step further. Prayerlessness is functional atheism. If we don't go to God and depend on God and pray to God and seek God, what is much the difference between us and the atheist who says they don't believe in God? Neither one are talking to God. Prayer is, is, it, it, prayer is supposed to... It shows humility, but it's also... It's, it's not supposed to be fake humility. It's supposed to be genuine humility and active humility. We're to be saying in our heart, God, I need you and, and you alone. And we're to approach God with a humble and contrite spirit. In fact, the very fact that we call God our Father, as Paul does here, reminds us, what? That we are his children. That we are the ones in need. That we need his provision and his protection. That we need God to care for us. And the fact that he is our Father, as Paul says, reminds us that he is glad to provide and protect. Paul's saying God gave every family his name, right? You see that? He gave every family their name. And he's referring here to God's act as the creator who is sovereign over the family. The family is God's idea, right? And in fact, the, 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 just the very nature of, of that idea of, of family comes from, comes from God. And so this picture of kneeling shows a physical sign, right, that's to be our inward disposition. But it's possible to even get down on our knees and pray and to not really pray with humility. 
It's possible to outwardly look humble because we pray and to outwardly look humble even because we kneel, but for our hearts to actually still have pride slipping into them. Like if we don't approach God often enough in prayer, that can be a sign of pride. If we approach God constantly trying to move him to our will instead of asking him to show us his will, that can be a sign of pride in prayer. If we approach God in anger because he has not done what we have asked, that is certainly a sign of pride. If he hasn't done what we wanted, what we thought he should do, it's a sign of pride. And Paul humbly realizes that it, is, that it is God that he must approach, that he must approach God humbly. And notice, it is God and only God. Another humbling aspect of this is that God is the only, only God that has the resources to answer his request. He says that according to his riches and glory, he may grant you. In other words, I don't have the resources to grant this. You don't have the resources to grant this. It is God who is the one who has riches and glory to grant the request. It's not Paul, it's not them, it's not me, it's not you, it's not anyone on this earth. God alone who has the resources to meet our need. I'm not a car person. Are you a car person? Do you know lots of things about cars? I don't know lots of things about cars. So when my car breaks down, I have to go to this thing called a mechanic. And when they tell me it's the dippity doodah, I just have to believe it's, it's, that's what it is, right? Because I don't really know a lot about cars. That's just an, that's an area that I have to go and I have to just kind of trust that they have the resources and knowledge and they understand about the car and, and, and I'm going to be dependent on, on them to fix the car, to explain what's wrong with the car. There are other areas like that, right, in life that we show this kind of idea that we don't have the resources. If you've ever loaned, borrowed money to buy a house or something, that was an outward indicator of I do not have the resources most likely to do this on my own. I need your help. Right? We do that when we go to the doctor. I don't have the resources to fix me or to figure out what's wrong with me or to diagnose me or to prescribe something to help me. I, I'm at your mercy. I need your resources of knowledge. And, and when, when we pray, one of the things we are doing is that we are acknowledging we do not have the resources, that God and God alone has the resources to meet the need that we have. And Paul realizes that. It is God. And so that is a humbling thing, or it should be. And what our hearts are ultimately seeking in prayer is the greatest test of whether we approach with humility. And when you look at Paul's prayer here, both the beginning of it and the end down here in his doxology reveals his humility. When, notice the ultimate cry of Paul in this prayer and in life. He begins the prayer on his knees, right, pleading to the Father. And in the end, he says this, to him be glory in his doxology, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The aim of Paul's heart in his prayer was ultimately the glory of God. And when we truly approach God with a humble heart, the cry of our heart is less about what we want and more about seeking God's will and seeking for God to be glorified. And that means that no matter what happens, God gets praised. He gets glorified. He's seen as worthy and good and righteous and just and great. And that's what God does in the heart of the believer who's been reconciled to God when we're living within our design purpose by God to live to his glory, he does that in our hearts, and our hearts begin to crave more and more that God be glorified, and our prayer life will begin to show that. And when we're seeking God's glory, our prayers become less self-centered, and they become more God-centered. It becomes less about getting what we want and listing our requests and more about seeing the name of Christ magnified through hearts and lives. And let me ask you, when you think about the things you pray about most often, the thing that you most wish God would maybe give you a yes on, how would that thing glorify God? Would that thing glorify God? Could it glorify God? And if it wouldn't, and if it couldn't be used for his glory, then why are we even asking for it? 
Even simple requests, right? Many times the heart behind that can be to see God glorified or it can be to see, you know, us glorified. We have to be careful about that. But, but the aim of our heart should be the glory of God. So we need to approach God with a humble heart, bowing before him as our father in our hearts, as our provider, as the only one with the wealth of resources to help us, and most importantly, seeking his glory above all. That's our posture. Secondly is the word possibility. We need to approach God with an expectant heart. Look down at verses, just verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory, right? He's revealing something about God and about prayer there. That God is able to do far more abundantly not only that we can ask, but that we can think. Listen, so much can happen when we pray. The possibilities are endless. And the reason is God is at work. It's not about the power of prayer. It's about the power of the one we're praying to. When you come to God with a humble heart, we should come expectant also. Our hearts just aren't humble before him. They're expectant and they're confident before him because we know we have a God who is able. He does have a wealth of resources. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. Way beyond than we could ever ask or imagine or even think about. Listen, Paul's saying you can't out-ask God, but not only can you not out-ask God, you can't out-imagine God. And I've got a pretty wild imagination, Right? I can dream up some stuff, like, right? And, and you're thinking, you know, I, I can think, oh, wow, wouldn't it be cool if God, and you just, your imagination runs wild. Wouldn't it be cool, God, if you did this? And, and God's like, man, you have no idea. Like, I parted the Red Sea. I, I made time stand still in the book of Joshua. You're, I'm beyond your imagination. You have no idea what I can do. And the idea here is that God's power cannot be exhausted. His ability is always full. It's always a full tank. It never, it's never half full. It's never He's always got endless power, endless capability to meet our requests. He can, that's why he can do far more abundantly ask or think. His power, that power that's at work within us, is limitless. Listen, uh, we, we bought a TV like 10 years ago, right, right after we got married, and it just died a few days ago. And I wasn't shocked at all. I was a little disappointed that I didn't buy a TV, but if we want a TV, but at the end of the day, which we, we've already done because we've got three kids, are you kidding? And, <laughs> and, but I wasn't like, oh, I cannot believe this. I thought this would, I was, that's, I was shocked that we had a TV for 10 years. And you know, when your car breaks down, we're not overly shocked. And when you run out of gas, it's not overly shocked. And, and when that little toy that you bought stops working, you're not overly shocked because everything that we relate to in this life is limited in its power and its ability to function. It has limitations, including you and me, us. We have limited, we get tired and we need to go to sleep. And if you don't go to sleep at some point, you'll just pass out. Right? We, we, need, we need it. But he's saying, not, not God. He, he, is, he is limitless. You cannot exhaust his power. But it's not just any power. He said it's the power that's at work within us, within you, within me, within the church, the power of God at work within us. When you come to God, asking God to work in your life, when you ask God to move in your heart and to help you as a believer in Christ or to encourage you or to equip you or to enable you, you should come expectantly because you are asking one who has unlimited power to meet the need. You say, oh, God, I need wisdom. He's got unlimited wisdom. 
Oh, God, I need strength. I don't have to. But he's got unlimited strength. We are coming to one asking him to do on our behalf what we can't do for ourselves. And we're coming to one whose, whose ability is limitless. And he can do in your heart and in your life more than you can even imagine. You're not a lost cause this morning. You're not without hope this morning. Even this morning, if you do not know Christ as Lord and, Sa Lord and Savior, hope begins there, right? And you have access to this there through faith in Jesus who bled and died for you. But as a believer this morning, this power of God is available to you right now. He's at work in you. So when you bring your burdens and when you bear your heart and when you bring all your needs before him, come with confident expectation. Because God has the ability. Not only that, God has the wisdom and God is good. And he will meet our needs according to his riches and his wisdom and his timing in Christ Jesus. Listen, as a parent, one thing I've learned is there's a stage, in, there's a time, in, there's a season in which your kids will come to you and kind of ask you for anything and there's like no governor, there's no block on that, right? Because there's these things they haven't learned. They haven't learned about money or budgets or how much things cost or, or capabilities or whatever, right? So they can see a commercial on TV of, whatever, Bora Bora, or name the, and they can go, hey, can we go there on vacation? And you're like, no, we're not going to go there on vacation. But they don't know not to ask for that, right? Can I have that? Can I have a car for Christmas? They, just, they don't know not to ask for these things. But then as they get a little older, they begin to learn, like, well, that's not something maybe we can afford, or that's not something that's right, a gift for a kid. Or that's, and they, we, they begin to kind of shape and mold their requests based off what they've learned about you, too. That's not something mom or dad typically gives. And my point is this. They learn from you when to come with confident expectation and when to come expecting a no, right, or nothing, or what you're incapable of. And we've all got things we're not capable of. But in prayer, as God's children, and our Father is God, there is nothing, nothing he cannot do. So we, our expectation should be limitless, and our confidence should be limitless, and our trust in him should be limitless because his power is limitless. So prayer is about our heart, and we need to come with a humble, expectant, or confident heart with that kind of posture, dreaming of that kind of possibility. But thirdly, and where we really need to camp out is this word, third word, priority. Approach God about the condition of your heart. Notice that is the core of this prayer. That is what this prayer is really rooted in, to be strengthened with the power through his spirit. Where? In the inner being. The Christ may dwell in what? In your heart. Right? So that you may what? So that you may comprehend what the, the breadth and the width and the depth what, of, of, and the length of the, of the love of, of Christ. All these are heart matters. Pastor Timothy Keller notes the overall emphasis on the inner life versus the outer life in this prayer. Listening to him on this really opened my eyes to that this week. He says, Paul seems to think that if you take care of your inner life, much of your outer life tends to fall into order. And that's the tension of this text. Okay? When you look at this text, that's the tension because when you look at your prayer request and when you think about what we spend the most time praying on, it's usually circumstance-based. That's human nature. That just means you're normal. Okay? We tend to do that. But when you look at Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1, and here especially in Ephesians 3, or this morning when I was reading over in Colossians 1, they tend to be very heart-focused and, and inner, inner life-focused. Notice the things he prays for. He says, pray that you'd be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul first prays that the Holy Spirit would strengthen their inner person, their heart. Give them spiritual strength here, right? So they have spiritual strength 
that, that, that only can be given by God. It cannot be attained on our own. He asks God to give it. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Later, Paul will say, like well, Ephesians 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here he's saying, I'm praying to God that his Holy Spirit would strengthen your heart. And then in verse 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The idea here is now you say, well, hold on. When I, when I was eight years old and I put my faith in Christ, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. Why am I asking Jesus to come into my heart here? It looks like I'm, I'm already a Christian. And asking Jesus into your heart is, is a fine thing to do as long as we understand that the gospel and what it means to be a believer and that we're placing our faith in Christ who died in our place and rose again. And you, the moment you believed, yes, Jesus took up residence in your heart. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit came to indwell in your heart and in your life. So what does he mean here? Why are we asking for something that we already have? Well, the idea here is really is about Christ being at home in your heart. Right? That's what the word indwell means. The picture is of more than a theological truth that Christ is in you. It's living out that reality so that Christ is at home in your heart or he is welcome in your heart. He's praying for our hearts to be strengthened so that Christ will be at home and welcome in our heart. In other words, he wants Christ to rule our heart like a lord and a king like he's supposed to. Because the only way Christ is really welcome in our heart is if he functions in his true identity in our heart as lord and as king, right? When we submit to him with our hearts and our hearts are open to his leadership. There's a difference in someone living somewhere, being somewhere, and being welcome there. Being at home there. I, I read an article, and I remember I looked for this article this week because I remember reading it a couple of years ago. Uh, in 2017, there's an article in the New York Times about a woman who heard a noise in her attic. Y'all remember this story? And so she calls, she, knows, she hears something loud in her attic, so she calls the police, and they show up, and there's a man that they don't know how long, but he's been living in her attic, right? She had no idea there was this dude that's just living up there. Well, let me tell you, he was in her home. He was not welcome. In fact, the police escorted him out of her home, okay? He was not welcome in her home. He was there functionally, right? But he wasn't welcome there. And there's a theologically true way in which as a believer in Christ Jesus, we can believe in Christ. He comes, takes up residence in our hearts. But when our hearts wander from him and we have a rebellious heart and we, and we kind of turn in our heart on him, we begin to do things our way. It's a way of us saying, you're not really welcome here right now. And Paul wants us to experience not only the theology of knowing Jesus and dwells the believer, the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life, but he wants you, he wants you to, to, to not only experience the theology of knowing that, but he wants you to experience the benefits of that being true when you live like it's true and you live in such a way that Christ is welcome in your heart and your life. Paul knew that if you want to, them to live it out, if he wants the Ephesians to live out the Christian faith, it would start with Christ reigning at home and welcoming their heart. And that takes the work of the Holy Spirit at work in our inner man to strengthen and change our hearts. And all this is done through faith, right? It is through faith that we see God's blessings and Christ's riches applied to our life. It's how we live out the Christian life. And Paul says, all this is that you being rooted and grounded in love, right? Rooted and grounded in love. Believers are rooted and grounded in love. We are loved by God. And therefore, we are a community that loves God and loves others. But all that begins with understanding his love for us in Christ Jesus. 
It, the root and the grounding of our love is, 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 is God's love for us in Christ. And it bears the fruit as it begins to change, as God begins to change our heart and lives, that we begin to love God and we begin to love others. And with that established, Paul prays that they would have the strength to comprehend or to grasp with all the saints, with all believers, the magnitude of the love of Christ. He says, I want you to, to grasp the breadth, length, height, and depth. And know, really know the love of Christ. He is painting a picture here of the vastness, the overwhelming nature of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. He says, I want you to grasp its breadth. It's so, it's so broad that you can never get outside of God's love. I bet there's some here today that there's been a time in your life, you might even be there now, but at some point in your life, you thought you were beyond the love of God. In a, in a, in a, in a room full of people, that's just bound to be true. Standing outside, unloved, and that's not true. His, his, the breadth of his love is, is so broad that you can't get outside of it, you can't possibly even fully grasp it. it it's so long that you can never outrun it. Have you ever felt that you ran so feared that you ran so far from God that maybe you kind of outran his love and he said, man, I want you to understand the length of God's love in Christ Jesus. It's so high. He says, I want you to understand it. It's, it's high. It's so high that it towers over any other love that you'll ever experience. <coughs> your spouse, your kids, your parents, they love you, but not like God does. And listen, you may experience an incredible love in this life with your spouse. But nothing compares to the love of God that he has for you and has shown you in Christ Jesus. It is so deep, the depth of it, that you could swim in it all your life and never fully be able to understand. He says, you can never fully comprehend it. You never fully understand. I want you to be able to, man, you just, it's beyond knowledge. He says, surpasses knowledge. You say, oh, Pastor, we want to talk about the deep things of God. Can, we do, can you do a series on something a little deeper? Maybe we can learn about what all those little things in Revelation mean and what the bronze feet mean and what this means and what this guy means and all this kind of stuff. Or maybe we can go back to the Old Testament and we can learn all this stuff about the tabernacle and you can teach us all, all that stuff fine and dandy. But I'm telling you, the deepest thing in all the Bible is this, that God loves you a sinner and sent Jesus to die in your place. It's the deepest thing in the Bible. And you can mine that, that, that richness of that, God's love for sinners in Christ Jesus, and at the end of it, and go get ten doctorates, and at the end of it, as long as you know Jesus is Lord and Savior, you'll go, I still don't get it. And the closer you grow towards you, the more you mature in Christ, the more you'll be blown away that God loves you to the point that he sent Jesus to die for you. He wants them to grasp it so that they will be filled, he says, with the fullness of God. That was a hard phrase for me this week as I studied it. So I'm going to quote from a commentator because that's a lot of times what I do when I've got a hard phrase and I need help. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote from a trusted Bible scholar here named Harold Pointer and his, his commentary on Ephesians is fantastic. And he says this, he says, Though in Christ this divine fullness ideally belongs to the believer, right? We're full in Christ. Paul prayed that it, would, it might be experientially realized in each one, in each individual believer. He goes on to say, this whole prayer moves towards this end result as he says, quote, of the final purpose of being filled up with God's moral character, which reflects God's character. In other words, that you'd be so filled with the reality of who God is that it would begin to transform who you are. That his character would begin to change your character. He's saying, I want your life to be dominated by, to be mastered by God to the point that you begin to reflect him. That's why you get over in Ephesians 5 and he says, be an imitator of God and love one another. 
See, Paul knows this experience in their heart is necessary if they are to live out the Christian life as he commands in chapters 4 through 6. If they are to be a unified church and to love one another and to have harmonious homes, they must be filled up with God's character. And only when that happens on the inside can it flesh its way out on the outside. Only when our hearts are transformed can our lives be truly transformed. So you notice that as we go through the the, the prayer request here that it is rooted the emphasis is on the inner life it's on the heart and that is in fact the priority of the prayer and I'd argue much of prayer in general should have that as priority think about the Lord's Prayer we used this last week let's go back to it hallowed be your name right our Father in Heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done just stop there and realize that all of that requires a certain type of heart to pray that with sincerity a heart that desires God's name above your name and God's kingdom above your kingdom and God's will above your will. That's a heart issue. And remember, this prayer is like a hinge in Ephesians. Doctrine to application. It's all about the heart. And once our heart has been changed, right, and we begin to realize all these things that are true and we, begin to fl we can flesh that out in our lives and we tend to focus our prayers, though, on the outer, on our circumstances. And on things outside our heart. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for those things. I'm just talking about the fact that we sometimes tend to neglect our hearts. Please, God, fix my finances. And God says, let's start with your heart. God, fix my marriage. I want you to fix my spouse. But God says, let's, let's start with your heart. Fix my family, my kids. Well, let's start with, you got it, right? Your heart. My job, I don't like it. Give me a new one. Well, let's start with your heart. It always starts there. New house, new car, I need this, I need that. Well, well, let's start with your heart. Or, nothing wrong with praying this. God, I want this trial to be over. Nothing wrong with that. But don't miss this. God's working on your heart, even in the trial. Everything about our prayers, we need to realize, begins with our heart's approach to God. And what, what is God doing in my heart? What does God want to do inside of me? Your circumstances, while important, are not as important as your heart. Your heart determines how you will live in those circumstances. And a rebellious heart, listen to me, a rebellious heart can mess up a great set of circumstances. You can have perfect circumstances in your life, your family life, and at work, and in your health, and have all of that, man, have all those ducks in a row. But if your heart is rebellious towards God, if your heart is not open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, if your heart is not filled with the Holy Spirit, if your heart is wandering from God, you will mess up your circumstances. That's just us. I will mess up my circumstances. That's human nature. That's our sinful nature. Your circumstances are not as important as your heart. And so, understand this. When you better grasp, for instance, God's love for you in Christ Jesus, as he prays that we'll grasp here, when in your heart you are overwhelmed by the love of Christ and by God's character and his love towards you, it will change how you, for instance, treat other people. It will change what you look for, what you look to get out of your spouse or your children. It'll change how you perceive and how you handle circumstances. See, as an example, until we are satisfied in the love of Christ, knowing we are fully and truly known and loved by Him, there is no man, there is no woman that will be able, ever be able to love you enough. 
No child will ever be able to please you if that's your all in all. And if Christ and his love is not gripping your heart to the point that it begins to compel you, something else will. If God's character does not fill you up, your flesh will. If God doesn't strengthen your heart so that Christ is at home there as you walk with him by faith, you will make idols to be at home in your heart. See, the heart is critical. And we've got to tend to it in our prayer lives for ourselves, but as Paul does here, context, for others as well. So you don't just, you don't just need a spouse. You're praying, I'm single, I need a spouse. You need a heart that can handle a spouse. Right? You don't just need God to change your spouse. You need God to change you. You don't just need a job, but a heart that can honor Christ in your job. You don't just need a, more money, but a heart that longs to steward all things for God's glory. We don't just need physical healing, but a heart that understands that we're spiritually rich. And there's nothing wrong with praying for the things I listed. I'm just saying, let's not neglect the spiritual side of things because human nature would lead us there. And don't misunderstand. I'm not saying stop praying for those things. We've got all kinds of other prayers we can explore in the Bible where we can pray for those things. But do not neglect your heart. Do not neglect your spouse's heart. Do not neglect your kid's heart. Do not neglect your neighbor's heart, your fellow church member's heart, or your pastor's heart. Pray on your prayer list when you're praying for people. Think about their hearts. Heart's a big deal. And true prayer begins with a new heart. A new heart. If you have no desire to really know God, if, you're, if your heart's burdened with guilt and with shame, if God seems distant and cold, I've got good news. You, you can know him. You can, you can have a heart uh, that loves him. You can have a heart that's free and forgiven and doesn't, isn't lassoed down with guilt and, and shame, but you can know that that Christ has bore your guilt and your shame and, and he can take it away through, through faith in him. So the first thing for us to know this morning is that for us to, to pray these kind of prayers, we've got to have a new heart in Christ Jesus. And if you've never turned from sin to God in Christ Jesus who died in your place and rose again and surrendered your heart to him, that's where it starts. But secondly, for all of us believers in this room, God wants us to learn from Paul and he wants us to come to him humbly and expectantly in our hearts with that posture, knowing those possibilities. And he wants us to concern ourselves with our hearts and our neighbor's hearts and our prayers. The heart is the most important thing about us. And we all believe that, right? If you've been a, if you've been a Christian for very long, if you've been around church for long, you've become to realize that Jesus made a big deal out of the heart. But does our prayer life reflect what we believe to be true?